Brody and team. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be back with you. <laughs> Don't clap. You haven't heard me preach yet. Um, it's kind of like I had a Jewish friend. He'd always say, why do you Christians pray before you eat? You have no idea how good the meal is going to be, right? So, um, which actually I would say, well, that's partly why we pray, to make us thankful regardless of how good the meal is. Okay. Um, all right, getting distracted. Sorry about it. You threw me off. Um, good to be back. Uh, the elders gave me a sabbatical this year. They were kind enough to give me a three-month sabbatical. So this past June and July, I took two months of that time, and we'll take the, the third month in the most of November and early part of December. But it was a wonderful time to be refreshed, to be away from the, the privilege, but also the burden of preaching every week, and to visit other churches. And I am very grateful and encouraged to know we are lucky to live in a community. There's a lot of robust gospel Christian communities in South Orange County, and we are blessed for that. Would have had a chance to visit more of them, but I guess I'm also encouraged because my family didn't want to visit other churches. They're like, we want to go to our church. So some of you may have seen me here around while I was on sabbatical, but that was good to be here as well. The highlight of our trip, however, I just, I'm, I'm not going to show you like an old school slideshow, but my family and I got to go to Japan. And so we spent two weeks out in Japan, and here we are at this wonderful village. It was like 30 minutes out in the mountains of Kyoto, the old capital of Japan, and found this wonderful restaurant that the restaurant's actually here, and they actually built over the, over the, um, the river these platforms. So that's just not like a waterfall decoration. That's actually a river we're sitting on top, and then we would eat our lunch there on the river. It was a wonderful time. It was amazing. And then to the left of us here, we are on Mount. Uh, Fushimi. It's the Fushimi Inari Shrine. Um, basically, it's a pagan mountain dedicated to these regional deities, and there's 10,000 Tori gates. And so we got to tour it and see, about, see what that's all about. And then there we are on the right in Nagasaki at one of the largest churches in the entire country, uh, the Imara Church, I believe it's called. It's right across the street from the monument to the 26 martyrs. Um, J Japan in 1597 had crucified 26 uh, men and boys, uh, three of them were young boys. You can see there were like middle school boys. There are three of two over there, one over there. And sorry that the light is bouncing around like that. Uh, and so if you go up to the, the monument, three of the faces are looking down. And because three of the men who were crucified were preaching the gospel to the men and to the people who were crucifying them there on this exact spot in 1597. So really significant. And, and Japan's, they're copious at taking notes. And so we know for a fact that 240,000 Christian men, women, and children were executed for their faith since 1597. And obviously that was mostly before the 20th century. So just fascinating to see the culture, uh, the history of Japan. And of course, if you're going to Japan, you also got to expect a little bit of I don't know why, but there's a galactic kitten coming out of a building. I don't know. That, that is Japan. So we had a wonderful time of refreshment and touring and enjoying ourselves as a family, but glad to be back. We are beginning, if you're visiting for the first time today, it's a good Sunday, because we're beginning a short series on the values we have as a church. And the series is entitled, Christ Community Church Values. I know zero points for creativity, but it's easy to find on our website, and people don't remember sermon series titles anyway. The next four weeks, we're going to talk about what are our church values gospel centered, faithful to scripture, making disciples, and building the church. According to the study of ethics and social sciences, values denote the degree of importance of a thing or an action. And values, they are both descriptive and prescriptive. What that means is, 
it tells you something about the individual or the organization that adopts that value as well as that value informing the decisions, the actions, the direction that that individual or institution will take. So values are a kind of north star, so to speak. They're, they're the needle on the compass. They keep pointing to you where you're going to go. They serve as a reference point. They direct you. They keep you from getting distracted, confused, or lost. When I was in my mid-20s and I was considering going into being a pastor kind of professionally as a vocation, I wrote down, and I was about 24, 25, three values that I had if this was the direction God was going to lead me. And those values have stuck with me since then. Number one was to have the heart of a shepherd. Wanted to cultivate a love for people. That does not come naturally to me. That's probably true of all of us. And so I knew I needed to develop that. I wanted to develop the mind of a scholar. I was not um, the sharpest knife in the drawer, still am not, and I knew that I needed to develop my intellectual life if I was going to serve God's people well. And finally, I wanted to have the passion of an evangelist. These three things had to fuel my life if I was going to serve as a pastor well. Now, last year, as a part of our strategic ministry plan, the leaders of our church, the elders of our church, thought it was going to be important to write down what are some values that are important to us as a church? What are our corporate, uh, what's our corporate north star, so to speak? And so we wrote down uh, what informs our actions. It's, it's kind of the thing that's underneath everything we are doing. And in a sense, and I'll have those values, actually, if you look in your bulletin, you probably have an insert on what those values are. In a sense, the values serve as our metric of success. In other words, as elders, leaders of this church, we, we know we're being successful at the job we're called to do if the people of our church themselves adopt these four values in their lives. Number one, if our people are centered on the gospel. If our people are faithful to scripture, if our people are actively making disciples, and if our people are involved in building the church. That being the case, we thought it was important. Hey, maybe we should talk about exactly what these values mean. And so that's what this four-week series is about. Now, if you'll notice, if you look at that handout in your bulletin, all the values follow a same pattern. They begin with a short statement of, of the way we're going to focus our lives in light of that value, followed by a definition of the key word in the value, and then there's a listing of, of what, how that value protect, guards us against certain negative things and encourages certain positive things. So, so there's a kind of rhythm and reason to how those values are written. Now, here's my hope for our series. My hope for the series is that if you are a Christian, you will get a sense for what we are about as a congregation, right? Now, now keep in mind, these are values that generally all Christian congregations should adopt, but in specific situations and contexts, we're going to emphasize something differently than maybe a church down the street because of our cultural context. And so you'll learn about what makes us uniquely a, a Christian church as opposed to our brothers in Tribuco Canyon or Irvine or Elisa Viejo. While we all share the same overall value, what makes us unique and different? What's our emphasis, right? So if you're a member, I hope that's encouraging to you. And if you're a tender, that makes you excited about what this church is about. If you're not a Christian, a friend brought you here this Sunday or something like that, my hope is that if you're willing to stick it out, you'll learn a little bit about what Christians uh, find important or value. And the reason I think that's important is because if you're not a Christian, you're probably getting your input about what Christianity is from the popular culture or the media. And, and because of that, it might be a little bit skewed, right? 
uh, we're not always about hot-button controversial issues. We're not always against things. We're actually for things. And so if you're not a Christian, I'm hoping this kind of lets you see a little bit about what Christianity is about. So that's my hope in this series, both if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Let's look at them one at a time. Here's the first value, being gospel-centered. Number one, we will live with a focus on a life of repentance and faith. So that's, that's, the, that's the value succinctly defined in one sentence there. Here's the definition. The gospel, that historic message that God saves sinners. By being centered around this value, we mean to put an emphasis on the implications of the gospel, which is the supremacy of Christ, the, the reality of sin, the centrality of the heart, the call to change and growth. This value helps our Christian faith from becoming religious moralism or mere behaviorism. So when we say that we're gospel-centered, what we mean are these four elements. The supremacy of Christ, the reality of sin, the centrality of the heart, and the call to change and growth. Now this morning, as you can imagine... I'm only going to have time to make the briefest comment on each of these, but it'll be enough to get a sense of, okay, that's what we mean when we say we're gospel-centered. That sounds good, but practically what does that mean? What well, means these four things? And I can only say something brief, but it'll be enough for you to get an understanding. The first is the reality of sin. Now, I've got some scripture verses on the screen. I'm not going to necessarily unpack those. I just wanted you there, if you take a picture of your note taker, you can write that down. Because this is, a, in, in the briefest way, a kind of a summation of what the Bible talks about the reality of sin. Now, sin's one of those words in our culture that people don't take very seriously any longer, is it? I mean, even within the church, when we talk about Sin, the concept of sin doesn't have as much practical traction in our lives any longer. We're more likely to be influenced by our culture. Talk about things we've done like mistakes or bad choices, lapses of judgment, addiction, or mental illness. The concept of sin in its full biblical sense has by and large fell out of the lexicon of American Christianity. Right Now, if you're the devil, which... That's another one of those realities that falls into that category. Our society no longer takes that seriously. That's exactly what you want, isn't it? That's exactly what you want. Because if you don't take something seriously, you're not going to give much sustained thought to it, are you? If you don't take something seriously, you're not really going to think about it much. And it's in fact in your life or it's implications for your life. So the fact that most people don't even think about sin is evidence of its reality in the first place. Let me say that again. The fact that most people don't think about sin functionally in their lives is evidence of its existence in the first place. Now, I recognize how that argument might sound to many of you, so let me share this story about a Baptist pastor to prove my point, okay? One Sunday, he's standing in the back of the church, shaking hands of his parishioners as they're walking out from the morning service. And a young man approaches the pastor, and he challenges him. Preacher. Right, you always know you're in for something when they call you preacher. Preacher. I was listening to you all morning, and you just drone on and on about the weight of our sin. How it loads us down. How it weighs us down. How it drags us down. And you know what, Preacher. I don't feel anything of the weight that you are talking about. I don't feel its drag upon my life. I don't feel its weight upon my life. I don't feel its load. I don't think what you're talking about is true at all. 
To which the pastor, he calmly responded, Tell me, young man, if I laid a 200-pound concrete slab on a corpse, how much of that weight would it feel? Part of sin's power, friends, is that it blinds us. It, it deadens us to its reality. Part of sin's power, a good part of it, is that it blinds us to its power. It deadens us to its actual reality, which is why sin can be so destructive and active in our lives, often without even us recognizing its presence. Now, I don't have the time to get into all the evidence of what I've just said, but I can prove sin's deep-seated effect on every human psyche right now. And that, that, uh, that effect, one of its effects is guilt. Here's the proof. Ready? What is the first word that comes into your mind when you're driving on the 5 or the 405 and you look in your rearview mirror and there you see a police officer right behind you? I know what the word is. Crap. That is, it's never the word, oh, fantastic, there's a police officer right behind me. So if anyone here is driving recklessly, I'm protected from them. No. What's the first thing? You check your speed and you pray to God that they switch into another, another lane, right? Or, or you, you, you try to innocently as possible switch into another, another lane, right? Not too fast because you look totally guilty, but not so slow where you don't look like you're not trying to look guilty, right? So just the right speed where it's like, I could change lanes or not. I don't really care. I'm not worried, right? That's exactly what happens. Even though you might have done nothing wrong, Driving the speed limit, staying in your lane, using your blinkers. In the presence of law, you feel that you've fallen short. Because you know, even though then you may have been doing nothing wrong, there's a time you have rolled through a stop sign, turned on a double solid line, gone too fast. You know at some time you were deserving of getting some kind of ticket. Friends, that, that little... Humorous example shows to illustrate that if we're being honest, so much of the relational chaos, strife, and tension that exists in our lives, because we're just dead to sin's power and presence. We rolled past or rolled through a red light in a relationship, crossed over a double solid line in a business transaction, gone too fast in the way we were playing with our morals or morality. Maybe not at that time that you were being... In the presence of law, but you know you did something deserving of a ticket. That little illustration shows that even though we might not do anything wrong, in the presence of law, we know we've fallen short. Now, why is this important to grasp? Some of you all obviously know, and that's because until you realize you're a lawbreaker, you don't seek mercy from the lawgiver. And you know the biggest law we break every day? And it's not what you think. The biggest law we break every day is that we do not believe God at his word. We do not trust his salvation or his love for us. That's the biggest law we break every day. We don't believe his word. We don't trust his love for us. Here's the proof. The reason we are not willing to admit and own the sinfulness in our lives is because if we really admit we're that sinful, we doubt God loves us enough to accept us. Because no one else does. 
And so because we do not believe God's word, we do not trust in his love or his salvation, we are constantly putting up our own self-righteousness. No, I'm good enough. I don't roll through red lights. I don't drive too fast. I have all my righteousness. I'm not that bad. You can accept me. And whether you do that self-righteousness traditionally, like you go to church or you read your Bible, or maybe non-traditionally, you recycle You have BLM bumper stickers. Whatever it is, you're doing stuff to negotiate. I'm not that bad. Because at the end of the day, you don't believe God would love you. By the same token, when you think about it, the reason we actually also sin is the same thing. Because we don't believe God's love, his holiness, his justice, his terrible majesty, that we will roll through relationships That we will cross over boundaries we shouldn't call transgression. Because we don't believe God is loving and just and will hold us accountable. So here's the reality. The reason we sin is the same reason we won't allow ourselves to be forgiven of sin is because we don't trust God's love. That's a scary reality. It's easier to keep negotiating with God. I'm actually a pretty good guy than to have to accept the reality of sin. Here's the good news. God does love us. He loves and actually tweak this. Here's probably the problem. You know deep down he doesn't love you just, he doesn't accept you as you are. He accepts you as Christ is. And so often we're trying to have him accept us as we are and forget, no, no, he accepts me as Christ is. And in embracing his truth, he makes me more like Christ. Anyway, being gospel-centered means embracing the reality of sin. What Genesis 3 says, there's no part of me is not scarred from sin. My intellect, my emotions, all of those things are wrecked by sin, and I need rescue, not just reform, right? So the question is then, how does that rescue happen? It happens when we give God all of who we are, And that's why the second value, the second aspect of this value is the centrality of the heart. Friends, whenever the Bible talks about a person, their feelings, their thoughts, their emotions, their intentions, their desire, or their life, it uses this theological shorthand called the heart. Whenever you read the Bible and it's talking about the heart, that is shorthand for the you that is inside of you. The heart, it represents all of who you are as a thinking, emotional, feeling, relational, purposeful being. So when we talk about being rescued from our sin, from the reality of sin, we must give, or the Bible often uses the term surrender because we're actually fighting against God on this. God says, I love you. You say, no, you don't, not, not, not enough, so there's my righteousness. God says, I'm your savior. No, you're not. I will be my own savior. So we surrender to him. Our hearts, the whole of the you inside of you, not just some reforming some behaviors or adopting some new religious practices, but actually giving all of who you are to believe his word and trust his salvation and his love. Now, the challenge is it is common to define sin and righteousness in terms of behavior, isn't it? That's often what we do. But what, why what you do, that's sinful or that's righteousness. Well, that's a very thin analysis. Let me illustrate. If you're driving down Marguerite, you go by Flojo Park, and there you see some kid 
standing by a baseball fence or whatever, and there's an old lady watching the game, and he just shoves her into the fence, and she almost falls down and kind of holds onto the fence so she doesn't hit the ground. Well, what, what's your reaction to his behavior? Right? Probably initially you get upset, rightfully so. But is his behavior sinful? Is it sinful to push old ladies down? Well, it depends. It depends on what? Did he intend to push her into the fence? Right? It could have been done by accident. He could have been walking and stumbled and pushed her, and it could have been done by accident. But what if he says, oh, no, no, yeah, I, I fully intended to push her. Well, now is that behavior sinful? Well, it still depends, doesn't it? It depends on what? Why did he push her into the fence? And he says, oh, because, because I know uh, uh, Peggy is super allergic to bee stings, and there was a huge bee there, so unless I pushed her out of the way, she would have been like anaphyla- anaphylactic shock. Oh, that totally changes what we saw on the surface of his behavior. So often we just focus on our behaviors and think that's the whole sum of it, the externals. But that is such a thin, small part of who you and I are. When God says he wants our hearts, he's not just talking about the things we do. He's talking about the intentions and motivations that are in our hearts. That's why he wants our hearts, because it's all of who we are. If he has your heart, he has you. Even if some of your behaviors haven't come in aligned with what you think a good Christian is, if he has your heart, he has you. Until he has your heart, even if you've changed your external actions and behaviors, he doesn't have you. And don't, don't get me wrong, friends. Changed behavior and, and different actions are important, but they must flow from a surrendered heart and are never a substitute for one. Behaviors and actions are important, but they have to flow from a surrendered heart. They are never a substitute for one. And so we focus on the centrality of the heart. Gospel-centered means not being so much focused on how we're being different on the outside. Like some of you are shocked that I said the word crap in a sermon and you won't come back to this church some of you are excited that the pastor is just being real and you'll come to this church, right? It has nothing to do with that. But the motivation and intentions, gospel-centered means we are just as focused on the internality, the inside, the change, the cleaned heart. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 23. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. So the question then is, who or what then can clean our hearts? This leads to our third value, the supremacy of Christ. Now there's a good, some good verses up there, but what I like about 1 Peter 2.24, notice that it says, how Jesus bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What Peter is saying is that getting at this work of Christ, uh, the work of Christ is able to save us because it exactly deals with this problem of sin. He set us free from the penalty, which is death. He sets us free from its power, which is enslavement to lies and desires and actions that are self-destructive. And ultimately, he saves us from its very presence. The Bible talks about us being in glory with him. 
So we're saved from its penalty, its power, its presence. Christianity, friends, is not merely a system of ritual, uh, rules, and rote duty. Rather, Christianity has a savior inside the middle of it, a redeemer, a rescuer, a relationship with the one who made us and knows what is best for us. That's what made Christianity so radically different, which is why the entirety of the Bible and the Christian faith orbits around the person of Jesus Christ, his person, his character, his promises. That's what uh, I like that about the Revelation text 1.8. This is Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and end, literally, says the Lord God, who is, notice this, he's talking past, present, and future, who is present, who was past, and who is the one to come. He says, I'm the beginning and the end. Past, present, and future, it's all about me, Jesus is in fact saying. And even in the Old Testament, as you'll see, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel starting in September. All of the Old Testament points to Christ in its images, in its patterns, in its promises, in its institutions, even in individuals, all point to God's plan of salvation because of his love for us. And so friends, this is why if you're new to reading your Bible The best way to get the most of reading your Bible is not to ask the question, what does this verse mean to me? Mm -mm. Ask, what does this verse say about him? People do this all the time, and I get it. They they want traction. They want application. But that's a a short gain for a long-term loss. It's not, what does it mean about you? Because all the Holy Scripture is not about you. But when you start saying, what does this mean about him? It changes the way you relate to him and the world around you. And indirectly, as a result, everything changes in you. But notice, back to, back to this Peter passage, it's not just the negative that Christ takes care of sin. Also, he enables us to the positive of righteousness, which is the last aspect of being gospel-centered. The call to change and growth. This passage from Titus, there's a lot we could use, but I just love this text here. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I like the, the, the word that we translate as um, appearing or appeared there. It actually shows up twice in this verse. It is the Greek word epiphane. Epiphane. Now, for some of you, that may sound familiar, particularly some of our, our, our Slavic brothers and sisters. They know what the English word is that we get from that. We get the word epiphany from that word. Epiphany. The manifestation of the essential nature or meaning of something. Epiphany. An intuitive grasp of reality. I love that our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox Church call Christmas, you know what they call it, right? Epiphany. Epiphany. In other words, the appearance of Christ, the incarnation of Christ is the manifestation of the grasp of the meaning of reality. That is so much cooler than Christmas. Which is, Christmas is cool, but it just means the coming of Christ. But they know this is an epiphany. The incarnation of Christ, the coming of Christ is the manifestation of the essential meaning of reality. I mean, obviously there's so much more we could say about it, but I I don't want to lose focus. I want to get back to what does the epiphany of Christ practically mean for us? 
Notice what Paul says. Well, the epiphany, this manifestation of the essential nature and grasp of reality means three things. It trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions. It trains us to live self-control, upright, godly, and it trains us to wait. And, and just a side note, notice, again, there's a past, present, and future aspect of this. We renounce the things we used to do. We're completely transformed now as we wait for that full and final consummation. So it transforms us because that is what Christianity is about. Now, if you're paying attention, you're like, wait a minute, this sounds like a contradiction to your second point. You said gospel-centered means the centrality of our heart and that the behaviors and actions, that's not the focus. Notice the pattern. So you might be thinking, so is the Bible saying two different things? This is confusing. But notice the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. We see it here. Before Paul talks about us renouncing this, us living this way, us waiting for the blessed hope, notice what he says. Bringing salvation, it appeared bringing salvation for all people. Notice the pattern. God never demands of us what he does not first give. God does not say, do these things because you love me. He changes our heart and makes us able to do these things. That is the pattern we see everywhere. All through scripture, God does not demand of us until first he gives to us. And so he says, yes, my grace, salvation has appeared. And now when you've embraced that, it does, it has this effect. You turn away from these things, you live for these things, and you wait for that final full consummation when Christ brings it all to reality. Because in this reality, we'll never be as, we'll never love him and trust him at his word and believe him as much as we should. We are always going to disbelieve his love for us. And as a result, we will fall into sin or not accept his forgiveness once we've fallen into sin because we don't believe him. But that's what Paul's talking about. Becoming a Christian is the beginning, friends, of a lifelong transformation. As the reality of sin sets deeper and deeper into our hearts and we get it, we recognize that a renewed life is not just performative. But it's a transformation of our heart, and that transformation is made only possible by Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses of the Bible, you should make it your favorite, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It tells us how we're changed. And do you know how we're changed, how our hearts are cleansed? It says we just behold the Lord of glory. And Paul says, as you behold him. That doesn't mean you just look at him occasionally, but what he means by that is, man, that's your, your sustained focus and attention. When you look at what he has done, the gospel of justification, that he has died on the cross for us, when you interact, one theologian said, when you, 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 I love how they speak in olden days, when you transact and commerce upon the cross, in other words, when you ponder the work of God on the cross that, that, that Christ did, you recognize, man, I am loved. I can believe him. I, can, I don't have to hide behind my righteousness. I can own the reality of my own sin, not be defensive when people correct me, because I'm not righteous. And it's okay, because I have a righteous Savior who loves me and who changes me. As you interact with that, as you commerce on that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as you behold that, you are transformed. As you focus your life on Christ, you become more and more like him because that gives you the security and the courage 
to admit our need to change and the power to do so. So gospel-centered means, man, that's my whole life. It's always about changing and growing as I contemplate the reality of my sin, the centrality of my heart, and my Savior. I want to close with two final quotes. You can tell I haven't preached in a while because we're going to get out here really early. You guys are like, woo, praise the Lord. Or did I talk really fast? Maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> Let me close with two final quotes and get you out here early. No one complains when we get out early, right? So um, one's by a philosopher, one's by a theologian. Here's this philosopher, J.P. Moreland, in his book, The Lost Virtue of Happiness. Remember, the concept of eternal life in the New Testament is not primarily one of living forever in heaven, but of having a new kind of life now. This new kind of life is so different that those without it can be called dead, truly. This is a life of human flourishing, a life lived the way we were made to function, a life of virtue, character, and well-being lived like and for the Lord Jesus. So the question we have to ask is, and how do I know I'm living a gospel kind of gospel-centered life? How do I know that I'm on that path? Theologian John Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, gives us a good metric. Here it is. The acid test of biblical God-centeredness and faithfulness to the gospel is this. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of his son, he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? Does your happiness hang on seeing the cross of Christ as a witness to your worth or as a way to enjoy God's worth forever? Is God's glory in Christ the foundation of your gladness? Friends, to the degree it is, you are living the gospel-centered life. That's Christianity. Not a moral, religious pick-me-up. Not a reform of a behavior pattern. Not adopting particular traditional political policies. It is a recentering of the star by which your life orbits from you to what God has done in Christ upon the cross. And that's a value we cherish here at Christ Community Church. If you're looking for a church like that, can I suggest to you that this is the place for you to be? If your life is not that way but you want it to be, can I suggest you open your lives to others to help you be more this way? If you are living this way, can I suggest you give great praise to God because it wasn't because you were smart enough to figure it out, but his grace given to you so that you might be a blessing to others around you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, Lord, that we live in a country where we can have churches just in this one community that are gospel-centered. And Lord, my heart is full of gratitude for churches like Union Church in San Clemente the Village Church in Irvine, Roots Church in Costa Mesa, Grace Church in La Mirada, and so many other churches that are gospel-centered. Father, our hearts are burdened for people and places that don't have co communities like this, as we experience in the nation of Japan and so many other places in the world, even here in the States, where we have swapped out the gospel for kind of a moral therapeutic deism. Father, help us to be a shining light 
not of our own self-righteousness, but of a recognition that you are such a loving God. Change us, Lord, that we might be a blessing to people and communities and churches around. Use us, we pray, to your glory in this end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.